Our Old Testament reading this morning is Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 10. This is the Word of God, so let's give it all our attention. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there and a road and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go upon it. It shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Wonderful prophecy. The coming of the kingdom of God uh, that the Christ would bring. And it's a little piece of that breaking in that we see now in our New Testament passage in our sermon text, Matthew 20, verses 29 through 34. Now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet, but they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Our great and gracious God, we pray once again, bowing before you, because you alone are the one who can open our hearts to receive this word. Your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray, O God, that your Holy Spirit would take this word and would wield it in our hearts 
and would pierce us where we need to be pierced, cut where we need to be cut, injured, bruised, broken, and then healed, made whole again, remade in the image of Christ our Savior, restored and renewed in His grace. Accomplish your good purpose by your gospel now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the difference in the Gospels between those who trust Jesus and those who don't trust him? Between those who uh, uh, enter his kingdom, that he welcomes into his kingdom, and those who will not and cannot enter his kingdom? What's, what's the common denominator that we see across all those who have these interactions with Jesus? Between those who, 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 who see him and, and love him and those who are blind to him and, and hate him. What, what, what's the differentiating factor? Um, it, it's not education. Uh, some people who come to Jesus are, are educated. Uh, some are uneducated. Um, it, it's not whether they are Jewish or, or they're Gentiles. We see some Jews come, some Jews don't. Some Gentiles come. It's not social class. We see the poor come to Jesus. We also see the rich. The ruler of a synagogue, for instance, comes to Jesus. Uh, It's not if you're a good person or a bad person that makes the difference in uh, uh, coming to him and trusting him or not. We see some uh, terrible sinners come to him, and we also see some upstanding citizens come to him. Uh, what, what, What makes the difference in coming to him, between whether you see him and you trust him and whether you reject him and turn away. It's none of these things. What makes the difference is if you come to him with your need or you come to him with your self-sufficiency. If you, if you come to him like a beggar crying out for grace and desperate for him to save you, that makes the difference. If you, if you come to him coolly, Right? It's a little standoffish, self-sufficient. Lord, I'd like you to be an accessory in my life, but not all of my life. I'd like you to help me with something, but not just save me from my sin. But then, then you won't trust him. Then you won't know him. Jesus tells us over and over in the Gospels that he comes to seek and to save the lost. Those who are totally lost. He comes to, uh, to heal the sick, not for the healthy. He comes for those who are weary and heavy laden, not those who are self-sufficient. He calls those who are burdened. The old gospel hymn says, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. The kingdom of heaven is for the poor in spirit. We've seen this over and over in the Gospels. And now as we come to Matthew chapter 20, wrapping up the end of chapter 20, standing on the brink of the Passion Week, triumphal entry starts with chapter 21, we see it again, that the kingdom is for those who are beggars for his grace. In the coming chapters, we're going to see the, the conflict that's been simmering throughout the pages of the Gospels come to a boiling point and boil over in the next few chapters. And, and, and the, the boiling point is, are you coming to Christ out of need for mercy? Or are you coming to him with self-sufficiency and so rejecting him as the Savior that you need? As we, as we begin here this morning, 
Uh, we, we pick up with Jesus. He, he's leaving Jericho, and he's taking the final leg of his trip to Jerusalem. So he, he's come down from Galilee, where so much of his ministry has been recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel. He's come down from Galilee, and he's on his pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. And he's leaving Jericho and heading, that's about 18 more miles to go, uh, through some rugged country up to Jerusalem from Jericho. And he's not by himself. He's surrounded by this, this great crowd of pilgrims who are, who are going with him. But also, note the text tells us they're following Jesus. Uh, these, these Jews gathering for Passover um, are, 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 are consciously following Christ as he comes. Um, no doubt they are people from Galilee who have seen his many miracles. Perhaps some of them themselves have been healed by Christ or their loved ones have been healed by Christ. They've heard his teaching and, and something in him has, has drawn them after him to follow him. And, and as they are this great crowd going up to Jerusalem together, um, excitement for the Passover and excitement around Christ, there's this sense of anticipation building uh, that the salvation so long promised is about to come, that the kingdom of triumph and glory for Israel is about to come. But then, just as they're leaving Jericho, heading up towards Jerusalem, the last leg of this journey, um, there's two beggars on the road. Two people no one invited to the party there uh, on on the road. Um, These two blind men, Luke's account tells us specifically that they are beggars, which makes Sense They're in a culture where if you're blind, what work are you going to find to do? Um, so they can only beg. Um, uh, they're there beside the road. No doubt at Passover, it's busier this time of year and people are more generous. It's around the holidays there. So they're, they're begging uh, and asking for help. You can picture uh, the familiar scene that we see of um, someone standing in a median, a beggar, cardboard sign, asking for help. That's very much the, the kind of scene here, these two blind men um, asking for mercy. Uh, they, they hear, these blind men, uh, they hear that Jesus is coming. Uh, somehow they get wind of this. And, and they've heard about Jesus, even though they're down in the Jericho area. Uh, they, they've heard what Christ has done. And, and as, so as soon as they hear that he's, that he's drawing near to them in this crowd, they start yelling. They can't see him. The only way they can get his attention is, is by yelling for him. So they start crying out to him, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Matthew's showing us, I think, that although these two men are blind, they see things more clearly than so many of the, the Jews, especially the religious leaders in, in Jerusalem do. They, they see two things. First of all, they, they see clearly who Jesus is. They call him the Lord, the Son of David. It's a title, Lord, title of respect. Uh, it's, a, it's a title of, of sovereignty and kingship, coupled with this title of Son of David. The Messiah was known as, as the one who would be descended from, from David himself. Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13, is one of the great promises of the Old Testament where God promises to David that he will raise up a king from his own line who will reign on the throne forever and ever. Um, and, and this promise has, has been the seed, the core of Israel's hope in the Messiah for the king who would come. And um, now these blind beggars see, here he is. 
This is Jesus, the Son of David, the Christ, the Messiah. They recognize His power. They recognize His authority. They recognize, as we read in Isaiah 35, that He is the one who can make the blind see. They also know He has compassion. They know He is a merciful, gentle, and tender Messiah. So they see these things about Christ. They also see, importantly, not only Christ, though, they also see themselves. They also see who they are. They, they know they are blind beggars. They know they're insufficient in themselves. They, they, they know that they have nothing they can offer to Jesus, nothing they can bring Jesus, just that they need Jesus himself. Um, no payment they can give, but just, Lord, have mercy on us. The crowd around Jesus hears them cry out for this mercy and rebukes them. And it's no wonder the beggars are, are right? They're the kind of people you don't want around. They make you uncomfortable. The kind of people that when you see them on the side of the road, you pretend not to see. You pretend not to hear. You cross over and walk on the other side of the street. They try to rebuke them. Jesus doesn't have time for you. The crowds, as one writer puts it, want to bask in Jesus' glory, but not practice Jesus' compassion. But the beggars, because they know Jesus and because they know who they are, they keep crying out. The more the crowd says to be quiet, the louder they get. They keep crying out louder and louder to Christ for mercy. All their hope is fixed on Him. They have something right where they know only Jesus can save me. Brothers and sisters, that is how we must come to Jesus. Like the blind beggars. Seeing who he is, son of David, Messiah, king, powerful, compassionate, mighty to save. And we need to see who we are. And see how desperately we need the mercy of Jesus. You may not be a blind beggar, but without Christ... Spiritually speaking, you are a blind beggar. You have nothing to bring him. No wisdom, no power, no resources in yourself to save yourself. Apart from Christ, um, as St. Augustine put it, you are not able not to sin. You're under guilt. You're under God's wrath. You're under a death sentence. You're under the slavery of sin's power. Apart from our Lord Jesus Christ. In yourself, without Jesus, that is all you are, brothers and sisters. That is all that you are. You need His mercy. And loved ones, we need to see that that's not only true when we first come to Christ. That conversion that we, that we realize like a flash of lightning, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior, but then the flash goes away. But, but rather, we need to see that Every single moment of the Christian life, I need Jesus just as much as I did at the beginning of it all. That apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. The, the cry of the beggars on the road here, these two blind beggars, is the daily cry of the most mature Christian. Lord, have mercy on me. So is that what you are crying out to Jesus? Is that the sense you have of yourself and your need for Him every day? 
Is that the extent to which you are seeking after the grace of Christ? If, if you're not seeking after Christ and calling out for Christ and His mercy the way they are here, you're not understanding, you're not understanding the gospel deeply. The extent to which you are neglecting the grace of Christ is the extent to which you think you are self-sufficient. The extent to which you think, I don't need to cry out for mercy today is the extent to which you think you're self-sufficient to save yourself. Let me ask you, um, what does it take to keep you from Jesus? What does it take to keep you from asking Him for mercy and for coming to the means of grace where He's promised to give mercy? What does it take to keep you from His Word? Reading it, hearing it read, hearing it preached from the sacraments, from the Lord's Supper, from, from prayer. Loved ones, the, the, the blind beggars on the road could not be kept from Him. People tried to keep them from Jesus and they could not be kept from Him because they knew who He was and they knew who their, what their need was for Him. What keeps you from Him? To neglect the means of grace is to neglect Christ Himself. If you would be like the blind beggars crying out for mercy, then go sit by the road where you know Jesus is passing by, the means of grace, and cry out for mercy. And He will give it. So this is, this is how the blind beggars come. And it's a model for us for how we are to come to Christ. Lord, I deserve nothing but Your wrath, but grant me Your mercy. For you are the son of David. But how does Jesus respond? That's the blind beggars. How does, how does Christ respond to them? Um, how does he respond to them? And more importantly, how, 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 does he, how will he respond to us if we come to him like this? He stops and he calls them closer. Um, he hears them, these blind beggars, yelling at the top of their lungs. Um, and he's not embarrassed by them. He doesn't put his head down and keep walking, as we might. Um, he stops. And he stands still and he calls them closer to himself. And think about what Christ is, you know, what he's going through at this moment and what's on his mind. He's going up to Jerusalem to die. He's entering the final week of his life. Triumphal entry right around the corner. His suffering on the cross right around the corner. Um, bearing the wrath of God for all our sins right around the corner. Right? He's about to go through all of this. He's about to do the most consequential and important thing in the history of the world. But he stops, pulls over, and calls these two utterly insignificant people to himself. We would not expect the presidential motorcade to pull over so that the president could spend time with a couple of homeless guys on the side of the road, would we? He's too important for that. He's, he's the president. He's got too much to do. That's not why he's here. But the president is a nobody compared to Jesus. Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords who has come to establish the end-time kingdom of God. He has a lot to do. Important things to do. 
But he stops, and he puts all of his attention on the two blind beggars. He calls them closer. You can imagine the, the crowd pulling back, right? They, they probably don't have the best personal hygiene. They're probably pretty unkempt. Uh, they have no claim on him, but Jesus, for that very reason, calls them closer to himself. He says, come to me. Gerhardus Voss, great Princeton theologian, um, early 20th century, writes in one of his sermons, he says, provided there be the irrepressible demand for Jesus' presence, he cannot, he will not deny himself to us. Then he asks them, Jesus asks them a question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? It's a stunning question, isn't it? What do you want me to do for you? It's a gracious question. That, that's the first reason it's, it's stunning, because he's God. He's the Messiah. And they should be bowing down at his feet, saying, what do you want us to do for you, O Lord? But instead, it's reversed. He's making himself the servant. What do you want me to do for you? He came not to be served, but to serve. I've been reading a book recently. Um, it's called Biblical Critical Theory by Christopher Watkins. Excellent book. Um, but in it, one of the things he does over and over is contrast the relationship between God and man that we see in the Bible and the relationship that other religions have portray between the divine and, and humanity. And he says that every other religion and philosophy of life and, and way of living in relation to God pictures, uh, pictures our experience as a lowercase n. It starts here, starts with us, and goes up to God in some kind of obedience, sacrifice, offering, and then God blesses us in response. Our obedience goes up, God's blessing comes down. Um, but he says, Christianity, complete contrast, flips that around. Christianity is U-shaped, right? It starts with God, with His grace and His blessing, and it comes down to us. And only then do we respond in gratitude and thankfulness. Jesus does not take these two blind men. He says, well, listen up. If you obey the Ten Commandments, if you get a, earn yourself a living and give some money to the poor, um, if, you, if you shape up your life a little bit, then I will respond in something good for you, right? End shape. No, he says, what can I do for you? His sovereign grace coming down to them. Mercy to them. He asks this of them. Does he ask this of us? Does he ask us when we cry to him for mercy? Does he say, what do you want me to do for you? Do you see Jesus in that same way? With that same kind of graciousness for you? Does he say, ask, ask me anything? Now, we want to be careful to say that Jesus is not a genie. He's not a personal vending machine where you put in your request and out comes this... Uh, this reward from him that you wanted. Um, he does not exist to make us healthy and wealthy and comfortable um, in the here and now. But we need that caveat, but don't let that caveat make you think that his grace is any way less to you than it was to these two men here. His grace is abundant. Jesus comes in the gospel and he says, what do you want me to do for you? I'm ready to give you everything I have to give, the best I have to give, the gospel of everlasting life in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 promises us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 
Jesus says to his disciples in John 14, 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. It's a wide open invitation of his grace. John Newton in one of his great hymns on prayer says this, his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. So take your biggest request in. Go to Him for mercy. He says to you, what do you want me to do for you? He holds out His grace to you. That's why the, that's the first reason that His question here is, is, so, is so stunning. It's a gracious question. But it's also stunning because of the authority in the question. Do you see how He says it? He doesn't say, um, what do you want God to do for you? Um, but He says, what do you want me to do for you? He's centering these blind beggars' attention on himself. He's saying, what do you want me to do for you? He's claiming to have authority and, and power to do whatever they ask. He knows they're going to ask for their eyesight to be restored, and he is confident that he is able to do that himself. He has this wonderful, great authority. The one who has grace, the one who has power. In response to Jesus' question, he asks them this. The blind men give the very answer we expect them to give. Um, they say, Lord, we'd like our eyes to be opened. And then Jesus responds to that request. And verse 34 tells us two important things about how he responds to them. First, he responds with an emotion. With an emotion. Compassion. It says Matthew. Uh, Matthew tells us here that he was he was he took pity on them. He felt compassion for them. This is not the first time we've seen this about Jesus. This has been one of the the great themes running through the whole Gospel of Matthew. Matthew nine thirty six says when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew fourteen. 14, again, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Matthew 15, 32 says it again. Jesus called his disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. He has this compassion over and over. We see it. It's one of the things about Christ that's pointed out to us more than, more than many other things. It's a deep-seated compassion, a, a, a deep feeling of tenderness and, and pity towards those who are suffering. It's not a quick burst of sympathy for someone that, that we might have, but it's, it's, it's this deep, steady river of compassion in Christ welling up for sinners and sufferers. Our, our compassion gets dried up so quickly. It gets used up so quickly. We can only take so much giving of compassion before we just need to shut it off uh, because it's too much for us. The more suffering we see often, the less inclined we are to feel compassion in response. We get a point where we're overwhelmed. But the more that Jesus sees the more his compassion wells up to meet it. The more that he sees sinners and suffers, the more he feels, the more pity he has. The hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, tells us that his pity is without end. His very heart, loved ones, 
is drawn out in love and grace towards these two blind beggars. Isaiah 53, verse 3 tells us Jesus is the man of sorrows, that he's, that he's acquainted with grief. It's, it's talking about his compassion, that he's not just acquainted with grief in an abstract way, but he knows those who grieve. He, he knows them, he sees them, he understands those who grieve, and he loves them, and he has tenderness for them in their grief, and he can feel their grief himself in his own heart. And again, this is all the more marvelous, given the fact about what he's about to go through. He's about to go through the most excruciating experience in history. The wrath of God unleashed on him. Full force of God's wrath against our sin. He's about to be betrayed, crucified, and buried for us. Now, when I have something hard and painful to endure, when I'm sick or whatever, I don't feel very compassionate towards others. I'm just kind of self-pitying. But not Jesus. He's so full of love and compassion that even though he's about to go through something far worse, he's still full of tenderness for them. There's a story I heard about Johnny Erickson Tata. probably know her story. As a young girl, she was paralyzed through a diving accident, became a quadriplegic. More recently, she went through a battle with cancer in addition to the chronic pain that she experienced. And in the midst of this battle with cancer, chronic pain, and being a quadriplegic, she was writing letters of encouragement to other people who were suffering things. It's stunning, isn't it? That in the midst of all that pain and suffering that she was going through, she was overflowing with compassion for others. That's just a little replica, a a miniature of the compassion of Christ here. With all that he's bearing, the weight of our sin and the weight of the wrath of God that he's about to endure, he's overflowing with compassion for two blind beggars. And brothers and sisters, that is his compassion still for us. He's risen in glory now, but as Hebrews 4 reminds us, his compassion for us continues. He didn't uh, graduate from showing compassion. He continues to sympathize with us in our weakness. He continues to see what we go through and sympathize with us in it and, and show us pity and tenderness in it. This is who Christ is, loved ones. It's who God himself is for you. Um, the Old Testament is, is rich with this same theme. Sometimes we can think, right, God of the Old Testament, wrath, justice, Jesus, grace, and compassion. But Jesus is simply showing us who God himself is and always has been. There's a wonderful passage at the beginning of the book of Exodus where it recounts that God's people, right, they're there in slavery. They're under the, the cruel tyranny of the Egyptians. And, and, and chapter 2 says their, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. He sees he knows our suffering. He sees it. He, he, he knows it as thoroughly as we ourselves feel it. He sees it and he knows it. And he is full of compassion for us 
in it, as Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 tells us. His compassions fail not. That is who God is. That is who our Lord Jesus Christ is forever for us. That's the first thing in Jesus' response to them, this emotion, compassion. But then he does something. He takes an action. He touches their eyes. Verse 34 tells us. He touches their eyes. Immediately they are healed and they can see. It's an amazing miracle. Nowhere else in the Bible, except in the life and ministry of Christ, do we see the blind being given sight. This is the power and the authority of God through the Spirit in the life and ministry of Christ, the same God who created the heavens and the earth and said, let there be light. Now through Christ touches the eyes of the two blind beggars. Let there be light and they can see. This is indeed the all-powerful Messiah. But what I want to think about together as we look at this is his touch. Why does he touch their eyes? He could have said a word. Other times when he heals, he says a word. He could have just thought it and it would have been brought to pass. He doesn't have to touch them. What, what, what's significant about the touch? We read this several other places in Matthew as well. Jesus in Matthew 8 touches a leper to heal him. Um, he takes Peter's sick mother-in-law by the hand and heals her. Uh, we're told in chapter 9 that he takes a dead girl by the hand and raises her to life. We're told uh, uh, that he touches in chapter 9 as well. He touches two blinds, blind men's eyes to restore their sight. And then again here, he touches two blinds men, blind men's eyes. Why is his touch important? His touch, loved ones, shows us the gospel itself. Um, Isaiah 53, verse 4, prophesies that the Lord's servant would carry his people's sicknesses. 53, verse 4 is usually translated like this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And that's a good translation. Um, but but the, the Hebrew of the text, a little more literally, would be translated like this. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. In fact, that's how Matthew himself quotes it. And when he quotes this in Matthew 8, verse 17, he says, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Jesus, by his touch, is literally taking our sickness on himself. He's, he's touching the suffering to take their suffering on himself to show them that he's going to carry it for them. And he's going to give them his wholeness and his healing in place. So we see that his compassion for us is not just a sympathetic feeling, but it's a saving action as he stretches out his hand to touch us. He, he takes, he, when, he, when he does that, he's taking God's curse on himself. He's taking sin and all the effects of sin on himself, bearing it in his own body, taking it to the cross and bearing the wrath of God there, the consequences of sin, including sickness and disease, and every single aspect of our mortality, he bears it all to the cross. In a sense, we can say, Jesus, yes, we, we say often, he, he suffers the wrath of God for sin, he, he carries our sin and our guilt, but he also bears the full weight of our sickness, our pains, and our griefs, and our death, our mortality. He, he takes it all. 
And, and in its place, what does he give? What, what, he takes something by his touch. What does he give by his touch? Resurrection life. That's what this gift of sight is to these two men. It's a little picture, a little foretaste of his own resurrection that's about to happen and their resurrection in him one day. Um, he is the one who's come to establish this wonderful new creation where resurrection life reigns in Christ. Loved ones, this, this, this is our Lord Jesus. This wonderful, deep, river of compassion and this, this almighty power uh, that He takes on Himself our sickness and our sin and bears it all for our sakes and rises up in newness of life to give us life in its place. This is who He is. Have you come to Him like the, like the blind beggars? Lord, I need Your mercy. Notice how the passage ends in verse 34. And they followed Him. Who wouldn't follow him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your gospel, your compassion, your power. Thank you that you are the suffering servant and the mighty king of glory. We pray that we indeed would follow you, that we would cry out for your mercy, O son of David, and follow close after you. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.